Originally, it was going to be, what if they reject me? And I was scratching my head during the week trying to figure out how in the world am I going to stretch a whole class on just this, what if they reject me? And so I thought about it a little bit more, and I was like, well, at the heart of rejection is fear of man. So let's just make this a, a, a lesson on fear of man um, in evangelism. So there's this, this old saying that, that I came across. It says that what grips the heart wags the tongue. And I just thought that was a funny saying, but as we uh, recognize, um, our hearts truly are the, the seat of our emotions, they're the seat of our actions. So what's going on in our heart is what's going to wag our tongues. It's going to direct what we speak. It's going to direct how we act. It's going to direct how we feel and ultimately all that we do. So it's kind of just a pithy way of saying that our heart will always direct our words and actions, just as Jesus himself declared, out of the abundance of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. That's right. So because our evangelism requires us to speak words, we must consider our hearts, for it is out of our hearts that our actions and words will flow. So perhaps today's content maybe should have come a little bit sooner in the, in the uh, class content, since uh, evangelism presupposes that we are mastered more by Christ's commands than we are mastered by our own fears, but alas, better late than never. So whether you're an extrovert or introvert, whether you consider yourself to be a quote-unquote super Christian or a quote-unquote normal Christian, uh, we all struggle with fear of man and evangelism. We've been reading this book uh, over the summer with our college students called When People Are Big and God is Small. And one of the funny things he says um, about fear of man is that if somebody claims that they don't have fear of man, you need to check their pulse because they're probably not a real person. (laughs) So the aim for our time this morning is then to help you discern where and in what ways you might fear man in evangelism. Okay, so that, that's our aim. We're going to consider where and in what ways you might fear man in evangelism, and then we're going to encourage you to fight fear with fear, to fill your heart with Christ, and then to pray earnestly to the Lord for boldness toward that end. So uh, as, we, as we begin, let's, let's open up with a word of prayer. Oh, sovereign Lord, we need you to open our eyes, cause our ears to hear, and cause our hearts to receive your word this morning, because we recognize that in our flesh, we want to reject what you say, but by the power of your spirit, we can receive it. So help us this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We've talked about this some, but um, just want to begin again at the kind of motivational level. So the best way to overcome our fear of man in evangelism is not to just simply kind of bring our minds under the discipline of motivational speeches to ourselves. nor is the best way to overcome our fear of man in evangelism um, to uh, just kind of commit ourselves to this mental discipline of being able to do so. The, the best way to overcome our fear of man in evangelism is to be gripped by our Savior who loved us, who gave his life for us so that you might be saved and so that you might compel others to be saved, to truly believe that you have a heavenly father who loves you and who cares for you. So let's begin. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to um, 1 Samuel chapter 15. This is uh, just a wonderful case study of what fear of man is and what fear of man can do to a person. And this, uh, even this phrase, I fear people and obey them, is uh, very clearly um, present here in the text. So 1 Samuel 15, let's read verses 1 through 3. And Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep and camel and donkey. And so the Lord is asking them to bring just divine judgment. He's using Israel as an instrument of his wrath against just rampant wickedness and sin. Now look down at verse 9. At verse nine. It says, But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. 
all that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Continuing verses 10 and 11, the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all the night. So here we see a God had given a command, and we see that this command was not fully followed, and so our antennas go up. We think, okay, what's going on here? Why did Saul not follow the Lord's command? So let's jump down to verse 17. Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you not pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And so here we have what sin often does. It tries to redirect. So Saul, even though he sins, he redirects it onto the people and he tries to rationalize that sin. He says that, you know, we we save these best ones aside because they're going to devote them to your Lord, to your God as a pleasing sacrifice to him. But then we see in verse 24, the true case, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. Though commanded by God to devote everything to, instru- to destruction, Saul, uh, Saul failed to follow the Lord's commands because in his heart, he had enthroned the opinions and the praises of others above Yahweh, the God of Israel. What gripped Saul's heart is what ultimately wagged his tongue. It's what directed his actions. At a heart level, it's important to recognize what's going on here. What we fear is ultimately what we will obey. What we love at our innermost core is ultimately what's going to direct our outermost actions. So if you're afraid of roller coasters, you probably won't ride roller coasters. If you're afraid of, mistaking, of making mistakes at your work, I mean, I just made a mistake in my speech. If you're afraid of making mistakes at work, you're probably going to be over-scrupulous and check your reports over and over and over again because you fear uh, getting reprimanded by your boss. If you're afraid of being irrelevant or disregarded or dishonored uh, like Saul, you'll do whatever the people around you want you to do. Our actions ultimately don't define our reality. They simply kind of diagnose it. They, they, they identify what's going on at that heart level. And so what I mean is that our actions are symptoms of what's really going on in our hearts. I wonder if you've ever considered this fact, that behind every one of your actions is a heart-level motivation, whether conscious or unconscious. But God, knowing this, that's why he provides a heart-level remedy through his son, Jesus. So sometime this week, I'd encourage you, I hope you see clearly from this text that um, ultimately what's going on in our hearts is going to direct our actions. Um, In fact, I think did, whenever John did... um, his heart of the kings, this is before I got here. Did he do one on First Samuel 15? Maybe. If so, you should go back, listen to that, because he probably spent a lot more time just um, uh, unveiling what's happening here. I would imagine that, that he did that. And so, um, but this earnest heart work, the reason we start here is because this earnest heart work is necessary to do. Again, if all we're ever doing is kind of chasing the, the manifestations of, of why we respond to things, what we say to things, what our actions are, ultimately all we're doing is changing behavior. And so we have to dig down deep into our hearts and consider what is, what is ultimately motivating us. Um, and as that connects to evangelism, we have to recognize there's, there's fears that are happening inside our hearts that are going to prevent us from, from evangelizing. So for Saul, obviously his desire to please the Lord led him like a limbing over the cliff of fear. But I wonder, what is it for you? This fear is not something that's characterized by simply being afraid of others, so to speak, It is holding other people or a person in awe. It is being controlled or mastered by people. It is worshiping other people. It's putting your trust in people. It is needing people. 
Ultimately, we saw that Saul felt that he needed people. So specifically as it relates to evangelism, what fear grips your heart? Are you afraid of being rejected? Are you afraid of not knowing what to say? We're going to consider some of these what-if questions toward the uh, end of our time, but I would encourage you to take some time to uh, truly think about what, what, what sorts of things are, are filling your heart. What, what, what things would grip your heart and cause you to fail to be faithful to the commands of Christ to share the good news of the gospel? So let's move on now to I fear God and obey him. So if we recognize that fear of man is not good and then it's going to direct our actions and cause us to obey them. Consequently, the good news is, is that we have a remedy. We have a, a different direction that we can go to fear God and to ultimately obey him. So the best way to combat our fear of man and its specific manifestations in evangelism is to fight our fear with fear and to fill our hearts with Christ. Perhaps the best way to begin our path to fearing God rightly is to start at the trailhead of relationship. How do you relate to God? How does God relate to you? If you are in Christ, God is your father. And if you fail to recognize him as your father, you will never rightly fear him. Perhaps you relate to God like a servant does to his master. You live in perpetual fear of God, and when you perform religious acts or spiritual disciplines, you do so simply because you don't want to incur his wrath. It's this constant kind of insecurity that plagues you. Maybe you relate to God like an employee to her boss. You view God as a boss whose, fur, whose uh, favor you must, uh, you must curry and whose reward you must earn. This is a, a holy works-based type of relationship. You must constantly perform work in order to receive your wage. It's, just, it's, it's that transactional uh, type of relationship. The issue with this type of relationship is obviously multifaceted, but one of the big issues is that you must wholly rely upon yourself to receive a reward. Your work is what earns you the wage rather than God's unmerited, wholly unmerited favor. So instead, what, what, what type of way should we relate to God? How does Jesus instruct his disciples to pray to him? How does that prayer begin in Matthew 6? Our Father. So we relate to God like our father, like the relationship of a father to their child. In a father-child relationship, the, the child doesn't have to earn their father's love. They simply enjoy the relationship with their father, and then they do what he desires because they know it pleases him, and because ultimately they know that that father cares for them. That father is going to do what's in their best interest. And so even if the kid doesn't know why the father tells them to not run into the middle of the street, hopefully the kid listens because they know that ultimately the father knows better than they do, and he's putting this on them to protect them out of love. You will wear yourself out if you keep trying to relate to God as a master or a boss. If you, if you implicitly treat him as a master, he will seem cruel to you. You'll constantly live in, in insecurity. Satan might cause bitterness to resentment to well up within your heart. If you implicitly treat God as your boss, you're always going to be enslaved to your good works. You're always going to feel like you have to do more. No measure of work that you do will be enough, nor will it cultivate the right fear of God. I recognize that in a fallen world, there's plenty of examples of fathers who have not fulfilled the role that they're supposed to and that this uh, metaphor breaks down in a fallen world. But as God designed it, the relationship of a father to their child is, is it's a beautiful thing. It, it, it really gives us a picture of the reciprocity that um, we see and almost the paradoxical nature of what it means to obey out of a right type of fear. But the point is this, friends. You do not have to earn God's favor. You cannot. The moment that you try to earn it is the moment that you realize you do not truly know who God is. 
And if you don't know who God is, you're not going to be able to fear him rightly. A right fear of God leads to humble submission before him in trust rather than in an exasperated insecurity. My brother, who some of you have met, um, he's in medical school. He's going into his fourth year, so he's had his fair share of exams and evaluations and all kinds of stuff. And, um, you know, uh, insurance companies these days, you may have one of these. They have these little devices that you can put in your car. They track your speed. They track how quickly you come to a stop. They track all sorts of just different driving metrics. And the hope is that it kind of incentivizes you to be a careful driver. Because if the metrics determine that, oh yeah, they're driving the speed limit, they're doing a good job of spacing themselves out, they're not coming to sudden stops, all of these sorts of things, then you'll get a reduced rate. Well, my brother, he had one of these in his car for a season. And then he said, I just had to take that thing out of there. And he didn't take it out because he wanted to be a, just a, a reckless driver. He took it out because he said, I need one thing in my life that I'm not graded on. So he felt just this overwhelming weight of all of these things. He's constantly being evaluated by the surgeons that are watching him as he sutures up a patient. He's constantly being evaluated as he takes his step two exam. But there was this one thing he said, I can remove this and I don't have to worry about trying to earn the favor of State Farm. Friends, this is exactly how God's grace works. It's the one thing in this life that we truly do not have to earn on our own. It's this wonderful, sweet, free gift that the Father in love gives to us through his Son, Jesus Christ. We're, we're, we're wholly undeserving of it. In fact, because of our sin, we, it's, it's in a sense like we've spit in God's face and said that we don't need his grace. And yet he still condescended in the flesh through Jesus Christ to give that love to us so that if we trust in him, if we truly believe that in our sin, we can't do anything to work our way to the Father, but we can wholly rely upon the work that Jesus does by his perfect life, the way that he actually did live without sin, and then his willingness to go to a cross in our place to bear the, the penalty that our sins deserved by receiving the full cup of God's wrath against sin upon himself. And then as he lay in the grave, he as we know, rose three days later, declaring that the grave, that death, that sin's greatest tool, death itself has no victory over this Jesus. If we trust fully in that work, friends, you'll be united with God. He will call you his child, and you can then properly relate to him as your father. Even as we've reflected on in the past, when we remember that we're products of grace, we're those who have been completely saved from our sins, not by any merit of our own, but wholly by God's grace, then goodness, it's just a, it's just a joy to, to get to follow the Lord in obedience and to, to fear him rightly, as the scriptures would say. So as soon as we orient ourselves rightly to God as our father through our older brother, Jesus Christ, then we can submit to him out of reverent fear. And this is exactly what the early church did. In Acts 9, 31, it says that the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This passage comes immediately after Saul's conversion uh, in the faith, and it records the remarkable fact of the church's flourishing throughout all of Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. Luke helps us to see that through God's help, the ministry of the apostles was spreading rapidly and the church was being built up. But then what does he say immediately after that? So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. They walked in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And so again, we see here the best way to fight fear of fear to fight against our fear of evangelism is to wed ourselves to the fear of the Lord. The fear of God, it's a recurrent theme throughout scripture. It's referenced often throughout the book of Acts as well. It means to have a great awareness of God's greatness, 
in his power. It means to be gripped by the God who's both creator of the world, but who is also the righteous judge who will bring his wrath upon sin. It means that we are moved by awe over the love of God made manifest in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. I don't think that it's any coincidence that the church that was being built up, the church that multiplied, and the church that had peace was the church that was walking in the fear of the Lord. We obviously shouldn't be surprised that those who fear the Lord rightly would then zealously obey his commands. Because their hearts, because this church's hearts had enthroned God and were gripped by God's greatness and power, the only logical response for them then was to obey. The only logical response was for them to follow his command to make disciples. But the text also says that they were walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. This is where the the fear of the Lord ultimately gets very practical. Some of you probably remember that in the book of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is a, is a, is a constant theme. And what does it say? How, does, how is wisdom associated with the fear of the Lord? It says the, the beginning of wisdom is this, to fear God. And if we know what wisdom is, which is to have practical knowledge about how to live life in this world, then we have to recognize fear of God isn't just this abstract or intellectual exercise, but fear of God is intensely practical. It means that everything that we do is filtered through this lens where, again, we are rightly uh, positioning ourselves in relation to who God is, and then we are seeking to make decisions based upon that. And so I don't want that to, to be lost as as we think about this and as we consider that the fear of the Lord ultimately leads us to a life of action where we're rightly oriented by God and we are dependent on his spirit. And for those of us, myself included, I was thinking about this this past week, um, there's so much of the Christian life that is gray. Uh, There's lots of times when we wish that things were more black and white. But then we look at what scripture teaches and it teaches us often to ask for wisdom. Well, why would scripture tell us to ask the Lord for wisdom if it contained all of this black and white information of do this, don't do this? Well, it's ultimately because the Lord as a good and gracious heavenly father trusts that as we're being sanctified by his spirit, that he's given us the tools necessary to make wise, godly decisions by spending time in his word, by seeking counsel from others, by asking others how they've grown to be built up in the fear of the Lord. And so we have to do the same. I want to think a little bit about the relationship between obedience and love and fear of God. So if you will, flip to the New Testament with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Jesus says that whoever has his commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves him. Jesus draws a direct line between obedience and, obedience of him and love for him. But we may wonder, which, which one of these predicates the other one? Is obedience based on love or does love flow out of obedience? The answer is yes. <laughs> obedience and love are intertwined in the Christian life. Obedience is such a tricky word because oftentimes we associate it merely with obligation to a higher authority. If your parent asks you to clean your room if you're a child, you go and clean your room, otherwise you'll face the consequences. If your boss tells you to turn in the report by the end of the day, you work diligently to obey that request. If the uh, police officer tells you to move your vehicle so you don't get ticketed, what are you going to do? You're going to comply so that you don't face the infraction. But obedience to our Heavenly Father, even as we've alluded to earlier, is based upon His love for us. 
those that Jesus references in John 14 that keep Christ's commands do so primarily because they love God, not just because they're seeking kind of a, a rote obedience. This begs the question, why, why do we love Christ? Or how do we love Christ? Well, look up just a few verses at verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus knows our spiritually orphaned status, and yet he comes to us. He knows that we're all spiritually dead, that apart from his sovereign work, that we're never going to be able to rightly and fully obey him as he desires and in a way that, that pleases him. But my friends, when you confess that Jesus is the Christ, the all-sufficient Savior who covers the penalty of your sins by his death on the cross, he sends his spirit to indwell you. And what does that spirit do? Remember from Old Testament prophecy, Jeremiah, that spirit ultimately writes God's law upon our hearts, which is an interesting proposition because we think about a law being written on our hearts and that just seems like a, a, a unique thing that instead of an outwardly written law that we have to force ourselves to obey, instead, God in his grace writes it on our hearts so that we can, by his grace and in the power of his spirit, do what pleases him as we walk in intimacy with him. So when this happens, your heart is fundamentally changed. Your desires change, your hope changes, and yes, your fears change. Recall that hope. Remember who you are in Christ. Remember whose you are in Christ. We've talked about this a bit before, but to an extent, all of us are spiritual amnesiacs. That is to say that we are prone to forget the truths that God has so graciously taught us. We must battle against that forgetful spirit, waging war against our flesh by reminding ourselves, by recalling the wonderful truths of the gospel so that they'd fill our hearts, so that they'd transform our longings, so that they transform our desires. So ultimately, they transform our fears as well. This is why my, my friends, like as, as Christians in this room, the gospel should never be old to us. Yes, the, the gospel is the good news of how we are made right with God, but it's also the good news of how God is sanctifying us. It's the good news of how we are, we are slowly being conformed into the, the perfect image of God and the person of Jesus Christ. And so as we recall the gospel, that gospel feeds into our souls and it nourishes our hearts and it causes us to hate our sins more and to love God our Father more as well. It causes us to just delight in our obedience to God. And this is why we have to remind ourselves often of the gospel. When that action or when that physical manifestation of a fear or of a sin presents itself, chase that upstream to the heart. And then once you arrive there and figure out what's going on at that motivational level in your heart, remember to apply this wonderful news of the gospel, of who Jesus is and of what he does in our hearts, and then ask the Spirit to, to help you to, to be more like Christ, to delight in obedience. How do you make a regular habit of remembering the gospel? How do you make conscious efforts to fight fear of man with fear of God? How do you seek to fill your hearts with Christ? I'd love to pause a moment if you have any reflections on any of those questions, if they're practical things that have helped you to remember the gospel, to fight fear of man with fear of God, or to seek to fill your heart with Christ. So if you have any reflections, we'd love to hear those. Or if you have any questions up to this point, you can feel free to ask those as well. Lisa.
Absolutely. Lisa says that we need to start our days by reading God's word and then uh, also to, to pray with one another. If you're married, praying with your spouse. If you have close friends, to pray with those friends. And in that, there's a certain level of vulnerability that you share because you express your, your weaknesses, things and areas in which you want to grow. Um, but all of, these, all of these disciplines fall into place through... Um, yes, through practice, but we also have to be wise and intentional about them. So we can't reasonably expect that if we stay up late all night watching Netflix that we're going to be able to wake up early in the morning and get time in God's Word. So sometimes the the preparation for these spiritual disciplines requires premeditation by how we order the rest of our weeks. So if you think about uh, the desire to spend time with God in the mornings, then you have to think about, okay, how can I do what I need to do to be able to go to bed early so that I can wake up early and read God's word. I know circumstantially some of you with young kids like Trey back there, regardless of what you do, you're going to be up late. But um, the, the point is to, to develop more disciplines in, those, in that way. Yeah. Anything else before we move on? Let's move on to this what-if section. The, these last two sections uh, will go more quickly than the first, I assure you. So these are just a few um, what-ifs relating to evangelism and kind of more specific fears that can be manifest in, in the life of someone who seeks to, to share the gospel. So fear of rejection. This is kind of a core fear of what it means to be human in a fallen world. We long to be accepted by others. Well, let's consider a few truths to counteract the culture's narratives about rejection and acceptance. First, we've talked about this, I won't belabor it, but if you're in Christ, your deepest need has been met, and you, by God's grace, never have to fear final rejection. If you have been justified by Christ's blood and you believe in him by faith, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. That is settled. There's nothing that can snatch that away. Ask the Spirit to remind you often of this when you fear the rejection of others. Secondly, don't forget ultimately who it is that they're rejecting. Fundamentally, they're not rejecting you, but the message and the person that you share. In John 15, Jesus says that if the world hates you, know that it has first hated me. And in Luke 6.22, he says that it is on account of the Son of Man that you face persecution. And so ultimately, when we internalize this rejection from others when we share the gospel, that's, a, that's some pretty deep pride because ultimately we're upset that we're being rejected when in reality what's being rejected is the message that Jesus is the all-sufficient Savior. So let's try to not elevate ourselves to that place but to rem- remember that um, it is, is ultimately Jesus that they're rejecting. Third, don't forget who it is that gives spiritual growth. In John 6, Jesus says that no one comes to him unless it is granted to him by the Father. 
if your fear of rejection is ultimately predicated on your fear that you won't be winsome enough to compel somebody to believe, well, then ultimately you're resting in your own ability to woo this person to Christ rather than in the Holy Spirit who woos that person to believe. You may be faithful in scattering the seed, but we all must confess that just like the farmer overnight, we know not how it grows because ultimately it's the creator who gives life and causes the growth. Fourth, count the cost. I know that rejection fear is probably most often associated with those that we love, though it can still be challenging to just be rejected by someone we don't know very well or say we're sharing the gospel with somebody on an airplane and they don't respond. Well, at the end of the day, we're probably never going to see that person again, so it's a little bit easier. But I think where, this, where the rubber really meets the road is you think about the people you have deep relationship with, whether it's family members or friends that you've built up uh, much relational capital with over the years. It's sharing the gospel with those people that sometimes can cultivate the most fear of rejection in us because man, we, we love these people. Ultimately, we don't, we don't want to be rejected by those whom we love. But there's, there's two things to consider within that. The first is that um, ultimately we, we need to ask the Lord for wisdom. There are times when those situations require wisdom on our parts. We can, we can approach the situation a little bit too hot and cause this person to reject us a little bit too quickly. And so we need wisdom from the Lord to, to be tactful, to be wise as serpents, to know how to engage with this person. But the second thing ultimately is that we do have to, to count the cost. We have to recognize that at the end of the day, this person is without God in this world and the state of their soul is in jeopardy. And so we have to call them to repentance which means that we don't just kind of share the gospel in an abstract sort of way to them, but we tell them that they are without God and that without believing this message, they're going to spend an eternity apart from God in a very real place called hell. So we have to consider the cost and to ultimately not kind of sit on the sidelines for forever, but to just with compassion and with care for the person and guidance by the Spirit to call this person to repentance. And if they reject the message, well, we, uh, we trust that either the, the, the Spirit will eventually open their eyes and their hearts to receive it, or we will um, just recognize that uh, sometimes the, the gospel falls on deaf ears and we just pray to the Lord to, to open those ears. I encourage you to count the cost and one thing that we can do is just a practical encouragement is to take heart knowing that as spiritual family, those who are our brothers and sisters and mother, even as Jesus said, are those who do the will of God. And so um, ultimately we can, we can take heart and we can rejoice knowing that we still have those, even in our midst this morning, who are our spiritual family who, who will not reject us. The second what if, you can see it there on your handout, uh, point letter B, what if they think I'm a weird Bible thumper? Um, in today's culture, that's becoming increasingly more secular and hostile to the culture. It can maybe be a little bit uh, antiquated to associate with Christianity or um, that you just aren't a rational person or, frankly, you're just weird. Why would you associate with some guy in the sky? So let me give you uh, an example from John chapter 12. If you're still there, you can flip over to John chapter 12. Verses 42 and 43 says, Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him, that is, believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they feared the, or excuse me, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than they loved the glory that comes from God. Though many of these Jewish leaders rejected the gospel, there were also those that ultimately believed it. But the text says, for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not put out, be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now, this fear is obviously a little bit more different than just the fear of being considered weird in that these men had really built their lives upon uh, this system, and this was their, their whole life's work. This was their whole world. And so uh, to be put out of the synagogue is, is kind of a big deal. But 
uh, in the end, it is a fear that is driven by the perception of others. It's a fear where the person is controlled by the glory they receive from men more than the glory that comes from God. Our fear of being considered weird or being considered out of place in this hostile culture is rooted in a concern for how others perceive us rather than out of a concern for how we can fully propagate God's glory. In uh, our session on personal evangelism, uh, or excuse me, on uh, personal testimonies, we considered Paul's conversion story in Acts 26. And um, one of the things that uh, happens there is King Agrippa says that Paul is out of his mind. He says, your great learning is driving you to be out of your mind. But then what, is, what does Paul say? Down in verse 29, he says that, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. What, what is it that enables Paul to overcome the fear associated with King Agrippa's accusations that Paul is just this weird madman whose knowledge has driven him to be insane? What is it that enables Paul to overcome that fear? Thinking related to verse 29. Verse 29, and Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am. That is to be united to God. So what is it that helps Paul to overcome this fear that King Agrippa leverages at him? exactly right. He remembers the the hope he has, and ultimately, he wants others to have that same hope. He recognizes that in his sin, I mean, he was nothing, but God pulled him up out of that, sovereignly converted him, brought him into uh, his kingdom, and because of that, he, yeah, it's constantly at the back of his mind, as Ruth says. But his concern is also, as he says there, that all who hear this day would become such as he is, as those who have been given this hope. And so what enables Paul to overcome this fear is that he drives it out by his fear of God and by his desire to see others come to saving faith. Paul gives us a real-life example of someone who is truly living out what it means to have their hearts so filled with Christ's honor and with compassion for the lost that the fear of man, it's not, it's just, it's not even a category in his mind. He positively filled himself with Christ and his other fears were displaced. Again, I think one of the tendencies prevalent in the Christian life is to overcome fear or desire or action through committing oneself to rigid discipline to change those desires or fears or actions. It's a, just purely a deconstruction act. But the Bible actually gives us a, a much better way. It's a construction act where we fix our eyes and our minds and our affections on Christ through reading his word, through surrounding ourselves with other believers, through praying to the Father, and then our desires, fears, actions fundamentally change from the inside out. So yes, we do have to outwardly respond in repentance, but ultimately then we positively fill ourselves with Christ, fill ourselves with the fear of God, and then those things change. This is crucial to remember in the Christian life. It reshapes who we are, what we fear, and what we desire. If you want a practical place to start, I just encourage you to incorporate more meditation in your Bible reading not just reading, but meditation. Thomas Watson, the old Puritan, said that the reason we come away so cold from reading the word is because we don't warm ourselves at the fire of meditation. It's kind of like, uh, and I was thinking about this morning, I was uh, brewing some sencha green Japanese tea in honor of the Olympics. And uh, as I was making this tea this morning, I thought, you know, if I just dipped this bag 
in the boiling water once and then pulled it straight out. This would be an awful cup of tea. What did I have to do? I needed to let that tea sit there. I needed to let it saturate the water. I needed to let it steep. We can't reasonably expect that if we just dip ourselves into God's word and then dip ourselves right out, that all of a sudden our affections, our desires are somehow going to magically change. We need to sit. We need to meditate. And again, this is, a, this is a hard thing to do. It requires us to remove distractions. It requires us to, as we're sitting with the word, to pause often, to, to think deeply about what God's word is teaching us about his character, what it reveals about our need, what it reveals about how that need is met in Jesus Christ, it forces us to, to pause, to slow down. That's one thing that I think would be helpful to incorporate in your, your spiritual disciplines. And if you uh, struggle to figure out exactly what it looks like to incorporate meditation, just ask a friend, ask another believer in Christ to meditate on scripture with you, to help one another. Our third and final, what if, what if I don't have all the answers? Matthew 10, 19 through 20 is a passage that's often cited in response to this question. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour for it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. I recognize that this verse, it's not like magic pixie dust that we can just sprinkle over ourselves whenever we encounter a really hard question and all of a sudden we're just like have this out-of-body experience where the spirit indwells us and we start speaking all of these uh, intelligible things to win this person to Christ. But it does give us assurance that God will help us in sharing with others to direct conversations toward God's desired ends. And there is the recognition that the spirit does help us to have certain recall of things how often have you been in a conversation where someone asks a difficult question or where you don't know what to say or you don't know how you're going to go about the conversation, but you earnestly ask the Lord for wisdom going into it? You pray that the Spirit would be with you. And then you walk away from the conversation. You're like, I have no idea how I remembered that quote or this passage of Scripture. What's well, because the Lord in his kindness is helping you to remember those things. But this begs the question, are you often praying for the Lord, praying to the Lord for the opportunity to share the gospel um, and to have the, the, the Spirit guide you in those times. Sometimes the Lord is truly gracious and giving us the words to share that we otherwise wouldn't have known and to recall those things, but God wants us to seek his help. So he wants us to be dependent on him by going to him to ask for his help. I think another really cool thing about tough questions that may come up in evangelism is that um, when someone asks you a, a tough question, um, it gives you the opportunity to open the Bible with them. So you can see if they'd be open to uh, meeting with you, to open the Bible with them, to seek out what the Bible teaches about these things. It's a great opportunity to just be able to invite them into more of a regular rhythm. Like, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, I'd love to, to help you think about these things by reading God's word with you. Uh, I knew this guy in Raleigh uh, where I used to live and he said that he had one of his coworkers when he was later in life just come up to him and um, as he was asking questions, just kind of these, these things about his life and about whether he was doing enough good and his buddy just gave him a gospel of John and he said, I want you to read this. I'd be happy to read it with you and I want you to answer these questions. What does this reveal about your condition? Who does it, what does it reveal about who Jesus is and what Jesus does for that condition? So he gave him this gospel and gave him those questions and it was through his reading of that gospel that the Lord saved him and he came to a recognition of his sins and of a need for a savior. So we can use some of those difficult questions to direct our paths into scripture so that others can um, see what the spirit reveals for them. Finally, don't be afraid to say, you know, that's a really good question and I don't know the answer right now, but I would love to find out for you. Those are powerful words, and they reflect a humble spirit as well to say, I, you know, I, I don't know, but I promise I commit to finding out the answer for you. What a kindness of the Lord to be challenged in such a way that not only are you forced to kind of 
wrestle with what the Bible teaches for yourself, but you also, again, have another opportunity to meet up with that person, to be able to share with them what, what, what you've processed in answering that. There's many other what-if questions associated with fear of man in evangelism that we haven't considered this morning, um, but may be true in your life. I was at coffee yesterday with Scott Belinsky, and I was asking him, you know, what are some other what-if questions that you can think of? And yeah, he posed, uh, what if I lose my job? What if I miscommunicate the gospel? What if I'm discouraged and I need to be in the right headspace before I can share with others? Though we've only considered a few this morning, I'd, I'd encourage y'all to try to think deeply about which of those what-if fears primarily drive your own heart, and then to be proactive to crucify those, those fears, to, to do some of these things that we've, that we've been talking about. And as we've talked about in the past, we'll, we'll close with this. In all things, we must be prayerful. Apart from God's sovereign helps, our efforts to fight fear and evangelism are worthless. So we must plead with the Lord for boldness to share. You know, Acts, Acts 4 is a beautiful case study of this in practice. The church had, early church had experienced remarkable growth through the ministry of the word and through the Holy Spirit's work in different signs and wonders and through the power of the Holy Spirit um, in prayer. Feeling threatened by the Christians, the Jewish council had arrested Peter and John at this moment and they put them on trial before the Sanhedrin. Um, but then uh, verse 23 says that they were released and they went, they reported to their friends um, what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And then it says, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage in vain? And the, excuse me, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed to the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with all boldness. They were released, and what do they do? Despite the injunction to refrain from sharing, they pray to the Lord for more boldness to share. And even as we see in verse 28, clearly affirms that God has ordained what takes place, and yet they still express a belief in this. But they also pray that God would give them strength, wisdom, boldness to obey Christ's commands and to speak the word of the gospel with all boldness. If you struggle with boldness in evangelism, commit to praying to the Lord to give you boldness. Join with other Christians in your church and pray together to the Lord for boldness. As our brother H.B. Charles has once said that prayer is the most objective measure of your dependence upon God. What you pray for deter determines what you rely upon the Lord to accomplish, what you don't pray for determines what you rely upon your own strength to accomplish. So pray to the Lord for boldness necessary to overcome your fears and to share the gospel with others. By God's grace, friends, you may never feel uh, adequately prepared to, nor competent to be the most effective evangelist in whatever you perceive to measure that success, but knowing the fear of the Lord, I hope you can seek to persuade others to believe. If you are gripped by the glory of God and by the person of Jesus Christ, I'm confident that you'll speak from your heart into the lives of non-believers so that they will believe on him whom the Father has sent. Your passion for Christ's glory and honor will communicate far more than your eloquence ever could. I think we have a few, time, a few minutes for questions as we close, John.
That's good. Yeah, John says that uh, what, if we're, what if we're not convinced ourselves? So we have to, as Paul does and as John and Peter do there, just be completely convinced in our own minds that what this word teaches is true. And then when we go into conversations, we're going to go into those conversations unflinching. It's like Muhammad Ali stepping into the boxing uh, ring. He steps in there because he's confident in his ability. Well, how much more confident can and should we be by um, this message that we've received? But yeah, that's a great point John shares. We have to, we have to be convinced of, of this message. It's good. good yeah it's not just a problem out there but can be even a problem in the church do we fear that others are like man gosh this dude he's a member of UBC and he keeps hitting the streets evangelizing people are going to think we're weird at UBC it's like (laughs) yeah that's good yeah Drew Yeah, encouraging one another, Drew says, to, like, you see the fear of God in someone, encourage them in that, and that's kind of puts wind in the sails. That's why as believers, God has so graciously ordained that we gather together as a covenant group of people so that we can put wind in the sails of one another through encouragement. That's good. Maybe one more question or comment before we close. Yeah, Matt. Fear of physical confrontation? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a big one. But he, uh, Matt also mentioned that uh, part of uh, sharing from Colton's testimony was him overhearing somebody else have spiritual conversations. So I was like, oh, well, yeah, we have to have that larger, larger picture as well. All right, friends, let me pray to close our time. God, we give you thanks for your word that you so graciously reveal yourself in so that we might know more of who you are and how we are to orient ourselves to you and how through the person and work of Jesus Christ, we can ultimately relate to you as our father and fear you rightly. And then um, as all of those things are in place to have the wisdom needed to um, overcome our fears of man in evangelism. So God, help us, help us by your spirit to crucify the, the flesh and to make much of Christ's sanctifying work um, that happens in our lives so that we can um, go forth and just be effective and um, go unabated in in sharing the gospel in our communities, our workplaces, to our friends, to our families, um, by your grace and with the help of your spirit. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.